All right, welcome again for those who came in a little late. So we're gonna go right into the talk because it works a little better for the Zoom people to be able to have um, that break to get, get the group set up. So this would be a kind of a short 20 minute talk as a recap from last week. And then we'll have a chance to take a break and stretch and then we'll come back for some small groups. So as we come out of the meditation, you know, letting the words kind of be received. I chose to talk about the Dharma as a, as a t- topic as a whole. We're looking at the three refuges or the triple gem of the Buddha, the Dharma, and the Sangha. And just highlighting that as a, as a whole. In particular, the question around how does our practice, our meditation practice, relate to our Dharma study, the study of the particulars of the, the, the various lists? You know, can we, is it possible just to practice and never know anything about Dharma and still have awakening? Or the other hand, can we just study and never meditate and can awakening arise? You know, I think there's, my bias certainly is that is more of the practical, the practice itself is such a foundation because it allows us to see clearly. And so that's what I'm going to direct my words toward tonight. Now, if you look at the Dharma, this is a, a partial list of the list of, of Dharma topics. There's the Four Noble Truths, Eightfold Noble Path, Three Characteristics of Existence, the Four Foundations of Mindfulness, the Five Aggregates, Five Precepts, Four Brahma Viharas, five, five Hindrances, Seven Factors of Awakening, Twelve Links of Dependent Origination, Ten Perfections, and Ten Fetters of Existence. All right, so that's a lot of lists. And, you know, some of you who have studied me, okay, I know all those lists, or I know most of them. And some of you may be like, I have no, <laughs> I don't know any of those. I don't have any connection with any of those. The thing is, like my own practice, reflecting on my, my early days, like the first 12 years or so, was really focused on meditation practice, learning to see, perceive in a clearer and clearer way, particularly around elements of selfing and of creating self, seeing how that dukkha arose and really not having much relationship to all these lists. And then I went to a, a, a in-depth program and from that program started to really understand some of these lists. And for myself, it was really helpful to see those lists come alive in relationship to my direct practice. Now the thing about, you look at all these lists what really matters is that they're designed to help us awaken, to actually be pathways into understanding, to see the nature of our minds, of our hearts, and see how we create suffering in our minds and hearts. The Buddha said he taught one thing and one thing only, uh, dukkha and the end of dukkha. I know that's two things, but he's talking about that as a, as a whole. And that's such a helpful orientation that whenever you you practice, how am I understanding how dukkha arises? How am I understanding how suffering arises in this laboratory of my own mind, my own heart? How am I understanding the release of that dukkha, the release of that suffering? Just as the great ocean has one taste, the taste of salt, so also this dhamma and discipline has one taste, the taste of liberation. This is from from a sutta. Now that, I think, if we really want to, if we're really serious about deepening our practice, 
learning to sense that one taste is essential. To see where that one taste is as we read a sutta, as we study one of these lists, as we sit down and do our daily meditation practice, as we dialogue with each other, where's that one taste? Right? So the, the interesting thing is each one of us here in the room and also on online, you have your own way of perceiving that one taste. You have your own kind of gateway or doorway into deepening in the practice. And that's really a teacher's only, only role is to try to help you discover that. Because you have to walk through that yourself. You have to see where that evolves for your own experience. So three things from my own experience, from my own practice that I want to bring forth to help us really hone in on that one taste is what I want to cover tonight. So one is mindfulness, one is investigation, and one is surrender. Surrender. So that may seem like the oddball on that list of, of three, but we'll kind of touch on all these. And these all work together. Because if we don't have these elements in our practice, we can do a lot of study, but I question how deep it really goes, how really deep it orients. And we can have a lot of practice, but if we don't have that, some of these qualities of investigation and surrender, it also kind of keeps us at kind of treading water, if you will. So mindfulness, you know, that's such a popular word in this culture. Be mindful of this, be mindful of that. You know, those of you who've ever traveled to England, there's this, in the subways, there's this mind the gap in London, mind the little gap between the subway and the, and the, um, the, what do you call it? Not the dock, but the, <laughs> the place where people stand. But mindfulness, of course, ties us right back into this, the teachings of the Buddha from 2,600 years ago. That mindfulness is such an essential quality because it makes all these things come alive makes all these lists come alive because it gives us this capacity to actually see for ourselves. Because you can study something over and over again, but when you actually have a moment of clear, direct seeing, that's when it transforms you. That's when it changes you. And unless there's that direct seeing, the Dharma is going to stay kind of in this, this fairly superficial level. This one sutta I read from this book last week, The First Free Women, original poems inspired by the early Buddhist nuns by Marty Weinstad. So I'll show you online there if you want to see that. So it's a lovely series of, of poems. And it's really, these are all poems of nuns, what they wrote as they awoke, some way of defining how that path was for this. This one's called Crossed Over. I asked Patachara, what is the path? Patachara said, just see all thoughts, words, and actions arising all by themselves, not from some imaginary point within. Just see all thoughts, words, and actions arising by all by themselves, not from some imaginary point within. I only partly understood, but took a seat. As the sun was setting, I saw the endless line of one thing leading to another that had brought me to the cushion that night. As the moon was coming up, I saw the arising and passing away of all things in every direction. 
As the dawn was breaking, wisdom arose in the east and set fire to the long, dark night. But don't take my word for it. Set fire to the darkness within. I promise it's like nothing you've ever seen. So that poem, you know, she looked, she learned to see, to perceive the rising and passing away. This is the capacity of mindfulness. She directed that to that quality of investigation, seeing how everything arose and passed away. And then finally she let go, she released, she surrendered. So mindfulness, again, gives us this capacity to look within this kind of custom-built, custom-designed spiritual path. You don't have to pay a cent for it because it's called your own mind. It's called your own heart. And you all carry it with you. Because my spiritual path is a little different from someone else's because you have a different history, different experience, different life that you've lived. All those bring a quality of conditioning. Those who have parents, those who have children, those who have Partners, all these are different elements of ways of practicing. All our traumas, all our hurts, all of the, the oppression, all the racism, all the all those elements can become gateways into learning to awaken. And mindfulness is what unlocks that key. So mindfulness, a couple important elements. One is that steadiness of attention to learn to steady your attention on something and let it be sustained there. Actually choose, I'm going to focus on this. I remember sitting um, in my in-law's living room and the, they have the TV, TV on a lot and I was just kind of watching the commercials, but just kind of timing how quickly the image changed. And it was like, you know, a second was a long time to have one image on the screen before the next one came. Right, so I say this just to realize, to acknowledge how we're trained by our culture, by our devices, by the media, to have a very short attention span. So if you have trouble paying attention, be compassionate for yourself. Be compassionate and just say, okay, this is, I just have to learn, I have to relearn this capacity, how to have that sustained attention. Now, the sustained attention, when it, it, it's almost like the sun hitting a, um, a snowfield, it starts to melt. It starts to see through that. Maybe it penetrates through the deeper levels of like the ocean. Okay, and that's such an essential part. Equally essential is our quality of attention that doesn't distort what it's seeing. Okay, what I mean by that is usually we see something and we don't see it in a very um, objective way. We're seeing it through the lens of our history. We place it, okay, I know what that is. I don't know what that is. It relates to this and that. We see it through our our liking, our disliking, our prejudice, our biases. All these things change how we actually see something. Our very language that we use, the very label we use, all have a subtle way of distorting things. I mean, one of the most fundamental distortions is that sense of me who's seeing, that sense of separation. We see from that bias of the separation. I see based on that. Like that's, that just everything orders from that. So mindfulness at its heart is designed to release all that, to release all that distortion. 
to actually see in a see, perceive, know in a very clear way. Taking the dust from our eyes. So we often practice mindfulness in a very, hopefully in a fairly benign way, something that's not very charged, like the breath. Okay, if the breath creates a charge in you, then it's important to find a different object of meditation because you learn to train that attention. But once you have it, you know, you have some capacity to study that attention and to see clearly what's being seen, to know what's being seen, know what's being perceived, any of the six senses, right? Then we can start to turn it toward the Dharma. Then we can start to notice, you know, how does this show up? How does the first noble truth actually show up? The new truth of dukkha. What is that really like? What's it like to have that hunger, that tanha, that wanting to become or to not become? What is that actually like? This five aggregates to notice how we take something like solid, like form, like the body. And we say, that's me. That's who I am. Or my reactivity. That's who I am. We start to look at that and question that. So this starts to meld into this next element of an investigation. Sometimes I think of investigation as kind of directed mindfulness. Mindfulness that's directed in a way that's attuned to where the suffering is. It's almost like we're, we become like those, like a bloodhound that can just smell. Sometimes my dog, my dog doesn't have a very good nose. I throw a treat on the ground. He's like looking all over for it. But other dogs, I walk and have a treat and they're, they're maybe walking as far as you know, I am to you. And the dog just like looks at me because they can smell that treat in my pocket. All right. So you want to start to develop that sense of turning toward seeing where where the Dharma interest is. Where is that one taste of liberation? Now, sometimes that can really be driven by seeing our, our deep pain. I remember um, really tackling the sense of self-disminishment, the self-inadequacy, the self, you know, just not like self-hatred, uh, really, and really wanting to be curious about that. And trying to train myself to have that quality of seeing without trying to react to what's being seen, to see the judgment without judging that judgment, right? Or at least not judging the judgment of the judgment, you know, wherever I can kind of back up into that. And from that place, I started to have that curiosity. Where is that inadequacy? Where is that showing up? And when I was able to really relax with it a little bit more, I started to notice how it was this this blinder, this, this bias that was a fundamental way I perceived the world. I would notice I would get a phone call and the first thought was, here's someone calling to criticize me. There's just like that, that thought would just pop up. So I could see, oh, that's just what I'm adding to this sound of the phone. I'd open the mailbox and expect there's a rejection in there. And by doing that, seeing it without object, without um, trying to react to it, not becoming so identify with it, seeing with that quality of mindfulness, it starts to slowly unhook so I can see it deeper and deeper. So sometimes the pain can really be this guide that I just want to understand how it creates suffering. Teach one thing only, dukkha and the release of dukkha. And sometimes the other side of it is where is that liberation 
Where's that quality of, of stillness, of love, of interconnection? Where is that in the midst of all this, this chaos, all this strife? Seeking that, calling that forth. Just saying, okay, where is that, this thing that seems so solid, this identification around this, this hurt or this belief? Okay, where is that sense of me in that moment? And sometimes you ask that question and there's nothing you can see. And that calls forth that emptiness, that stillness. That stillness, which is yet full of everything. So investigation, I think, is especially helpful in, if you're trying to practice in the midst of daily life. Okay, because daily life gives you lots of little bumps and bruises, sometimes big bumps and bruises. And he's turned to learn to, to look at those, to turn toward those with investigation, to see how am I forming around that? How am I creating suffering around that? What's the nature of that? What's the added on suffering? Where's the release of that? Mindfulness, the willingness to actually see what's present in this body, seeing the contraction of the body, the contraction of the heart, all without distortion. And in that direct seeing of it, that transforms. When we see, when we actually see something very clearly without anything extra added to it, that has a tremendous power to transform how we are in the world. That's the arising of insight. And then finally, surrender. Surrender. Because we can see deeply, we can see these patterns, and we can also see our investment in them, how we want to still stay me. I want to stay contracted in what's known, what's familiar, even though that may be a very painful familiarity. You know, this is who I am, this painful self. But there's that surrender, that letting go of that position. And, and this is something that once you start to get a sense of that, it really profoundly changes your daily life. Because you have, sometimes you surrender without even realizing that you surrender. You know, the, you go through like an intro class, a beginning class like I'm teaching right now. At the end, this one woman was just talking about her. She had supervised a number of people and they were just commenting that she was different in that role as a supervisor. She was somehow more present, less to react. Something was letting go in her. So instead of thinking of us letting go, it's more like something lets go of us. Right. So that's, that's an attitude. We just become available for that to release from us. And surrendering that letting go comes back into mindfulness and investigation because you start to see where investigation shows us where we're contracted, where we're held. And we have this invitation of letting go of that, of surrendering that position. Mindfulness, can we relax with what's arising? Feel this breath, feel this experience without having to do anything with a non-resistance to life. So these three elements of mindfulness, investigation, and surrender, at least for me and you know, many of the people I dialogue with and, and teach, 
I think is very, is a very helpful combination because it allows us to take whatever Dharma list we might be exploring or whatever situation in our life and actually bring it right into our practice. So it's, it's not an obstacle to our practice, it's actually a way of deepening into our life and into our practice. And it takes the, sometimes the abstract nature of the, the, the Dharma list and makes it very personal. You actually see, how does it show up right here in this body, in this mind, in this heart? How does it show up in my actions and my choices? It's in this way that the weaving of our life and our practice really start to become one and the same thing and become un, un, um, unseparable. All right. So I think that's all I want to share tonight on those words. So let's just sit quietly for a couple moments, letting those words settle. All right. Thank you for your kind attention. And as we go into a five-minute break, I will come back and do these uh, group discussions talking about what's your experience around meditation practice versus study. Very helpful way for you to integrate your practice, to actually voice what you see or don't see, your confusion, your insight, and equally importantly, learn how to listen to other people. Because listening to other people and their practice really strengthens your, your, your practice. And also, this is a nice time to attend to Donna to support for Sims, Seattle Insight, and also for myself as a teacher. That you know, we we both the organization and, and me as myself as a teacher is all McCary and Twery and all the LDLs. We all depend upon your generosity, your your voluntary support for our our livelihood as teachers. All right, we'll come back at eight oh three for small groups. All right, welcome back. All right, so let me talk about the topic and then we'll have you break up into groups. So the topic is 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 from the homework from last week, that in your own experience, so again, you're speaking from what you know for your own self. What has been the role of meditation practice compared to study of the many lists of, of Buddhism, right? Or however you've approached Buddhism. So you may have you may have a huge amount of time in one area or not, or maybe none in one and none in another. That's perfectly fine. Just speak from your own experience. And see if you can notice what's the relationship between practice and study. You know, because you can study something, puts us in a particular uh, frame of mind or particular orientation, and then practicing has a different orientation. What's the pros and cons of both of those? Their strengths and limitations. How does practice inform your study? How does study inform your practice? An ideal way, both are really living, really feeding off each other. You study something and you really see it directly in your practice and you practice and it really inspires your study, makes you read in a different way. Right? Does that make sense? Is that enough to go on? So let's have groups of four to five and we'll have 20 minutes. And just these groups are about really sharing your own experience and listening deeply to each other. So it's not really about offering ideas or suggestions to someone 
Sorry, we got lost. We had a someone unmuted there. Let me mute that person. Okay. Sorry about that. Sometimes the unmute happens online, and we have a, you have you're on speaker here, so we can hear you. So um, what I was saying is, is it's not about trying to fix or solve someone's problem, but just listen to them. You can ask a follow-up question if that's helpful. And in these groups, sometimes some people like to naturally speak more, some people less, but try to balance it out so everyone has a chance to share. Also holding everything said there confidentially so people can relax and share as they, they feel comfortable. All right, any questions about the groups? All right, yeah, no? All right. All right, so here in the room, go ahead and find um, four, three to four other people. And online, you'll be put in a group shortly. All right, so how was that? What did you explore around practice and Dharma? Are there any people like to share or ask any questions around that, both here online and in person? If you're online, you can just raise your, your virtual hand and I'll see it and give you a call on you and here in in the room if you don't mind raising your hand also we can put you on the speaker so they can hear you online you're not on the big speaker just on the online speaker yes am i coming up can you hear me okay you might hold it a little closer so they can hear you fine can you hear okay hi (laughs) Um, so I've, uh, I've been meditating for a few years and, uh, and maybe you've read some books, but really haven't really studied too Mm -hmm. much Dharma. Um, and then I've started coming here and two weeks ago I went to, um, a weekend silent meditation retreat, which was really interesting. Um, it was Zen and so there's chanting and, you know, reading things but something came up to, with me of like, oh, this feels like worship, you know? Mm. And I, I asked them about that. And yeah. that's something as I start to like dive more into the Dharma, kind of <laughs> like, uh, like finding why that, like the resistance to mm. worship or like why I want to define it as worship. Right. You know what I mean? And so... Um, yeah, I think that's like a, an experience I'm having of like balancing Dharma and meditation. And around worship mm-hmm. is, a, is a part of that. Yeah. Right. Just hang out there in case I have any follow up or you have any follow up. Yeah. So that's, that's a part I didn't add to the mix is that, you know, in terms of Buddhist practice as a whole, worship is often very much a big, you know, part of that. At Sims, we don't do a whole lot of that. You know, we don't have, we don't have any Buddhist statues. You know, we, we bow to the, you know, each other, but we're also bowing to each other equally. So there's more of that kind of spiritual friendship with the teacher versus the, you know, whatever you might look at, like a guru or something. And then, but some traditions like Zen, there's often quite a bit of bowing, quite a bit of chanting and really that quality. And certainly some Theravatan traditions have that also, especially if you hang around monastics. I mean, they're bowing all the time and it's just, it's a big part of it. So what I would say is that you can really find what works for you. Like Sims, for example, you know, you can have, 
you can be on the one side of really having worship be a huge part. You have a little shrine or you could have nothing at all to do with worship. And that's all very, very fine. So I think many of us, we kind of, we have trouble with worship because it was maybe imposed upon us, you know, without, we don't have a choice, you know, like whether it's our parents or our bringing or different scenes we're in. That was just kind of the package that we had to conform to. And so sometimes it's nice to kind of step back and see where is my relationship to that? Unless you're practicing in a tradition that that's what you do, then that's what you do. But I think it's often um, like for bowing, for example, we can think of bowing. um, This question came up on a retreat I taught, like, you know, what's the deal with bowing, (laughs) you know, basically. And we can think of bowing. We can do it from a very, you know, a worshipy way or is worshipy. Is that a word? (laughs) Or we can do it from a respectful way or just acknowledgement way. There's so many different ways we can do it. I was in a in a different tradition, not Buddhist at all, but there was um, lots of ceremony, lots of elaborate ceremony. And there's this way of uh, bowing, like doing a bow without actually bowing, like the feeling of the bow. And I always, I always like that. And I think it's like, if you choose to bow, you know, try to bow full heartedly. And if you don't bow, then don't do that full heartedly. I think that's what's, that's really what's important. Yeah. Yeah. Does that anything else around that? Yeah, yeah, just kind of finding my my path and like what I what I'm connected to. That's right, and noticing where you get stuck on something. Mm-hmm. She was just saying because like, you're going to hear, or maybe you could hear online that just finding her path and where she got stuck. And I think finding where those little sticking spots are, those are really helpful to notice because mm-hmm. sometimes they're coming from um, real discernment, mm-hmm. you know, and what's really a natural fit for you. Yeah. Sometimes they're coming from you know, reasons actually is helpful to, to explore and open to. So sometimes it's discernment. Sometimes it's more of our, you know, our, our, you know, stuck spots and, and kind of seeing which is which, but you know, certainly anytime that you feel like you're asked to do something that just doesn't feel right, then that's, I think you should follow that discernment. Yeah. No, it's more like, I don't know, (laughs) you know? Yeah. Good. Thank you for asking that, for sharing that. All right. Anyone online? I don't see any hands, but you're welcome to throw them up there. All right. What about back here in person? All right, Cheryl. We had a pretty good conversation about about you know practice between meditation and and uh, and reading and and study. Yeah. And um, Ariana, is that your name? Irena, thank you. Um, asked, you know, do you get did you get most of it from reading or or from listening? And and then I realized a lot of it was was by the, by the time I, I came to Sims, I mean, you know, I started with MBSR with, with a, with a teacher from this tradition, thankfully. And, um, and so I got a lot of teaching there, but it was a lot of listening. I wasn't doing a lot of reading and, but I started reading and I remember Tawari told me in the beginning, stop reading so much mm-hmm. because I was reading everything without really, without any discernment. But the first couple of books I read, I read Mindfulness by Joseph Goldstein and I read, um, Bhikkhu Inalia's, um, Satipatthana. Mm-hmm. And those were, those were beneficial, but then I started reading Tibetan stuff and I said, and it just got too confusing. And so 
I think just coming coming to Sangha, listening to talks, you know, listening to the same thing over and over and over again. It's just and practicing with it. Um, it's it's a uh, it's a nice for me. It's, it just feels like a you know the way it's supposed to be as far as how you know the. Mm-hmm. This much, you know, I, I have a daily practice, so that's that's important. Um, anyway, so just it's it's a uh, for me, it's it's just over and over and over again, like what you talked about, you know, like today I was going through kind of a rough thing. I was saying, feeling all this doubt, you know, I think, think, you know, this is this is hard. I'm really having some rough feelings here, mm. but I was mindful of them. I was investigating the feelings and and watching them change. And watching them change and watching them go back and watching them change, you know. So it's uh, it's something that's growing on me, I suppose. And like the the, the practice is doing me, you know. I'm not really doing the practice, mm-hmm. and I think that's just a. And even talking about it, I don't feel like I ever make any sense. <laughs> <laughs> I'll sit here for a second. I feel the same way sometimes. Yeah, yeah that's yeah, that's some nice sharing, Cheryl. I think one one thing to kind of highlight is that we have kind of this unique challenge this day and age because we have so much access to so many different kinds of teachings and it can become confusing because we can go, we can go, go take a walk to a, a spiritual bookstore or a section at a bookstore and there's Tibetan teachings and they talk about the Dharma this way and there's Zen teachings talk about it this way and there's Theravatan and there's Western insight and there's all these different ways it's formed and talked about. I mean, back in the old days, you would, you'd be lucky if you found one teacher that you could study with, if you could find yeah, one exactly. book. No, and then, everywhere. and the benefit of that is that you would just kind of follow it. You would just devote yourself to how that one voice was. And if you devoted yourself to it and really practiced it, because each, each, each voice, each lineage, each tradition, each technique has a certain trajectory, if you will. It, it leads someplace. It should be onward leading. It has its own kind of internal logic and internal way of, of training the mind and, and releasing of the heart. And so by having one practice, we follow through on that and then we actually deepen into it. Trouble is if it's not a good fit for you, if it has a lot of bowing and you don't like bowing, then, you know, you're kind of stuck there. But the trouble with this, this day and age is that we can, we can have almost no friction to find, you know, so many different often contradictory types of meditation and teachings and, and approaches. And it takes a while to kind of see through all the differences and see the, the similarity underneath all of them. It's like a good advice is, you know, the first, you know, maybe five years or so, just to stay in one, one lineage for a while and really kind of get yourself, okay, I really feel at home. Yeah. And then you can start to use other ones. And then when you do, when you get to that point, when you feel like you're kind of established in one way, the other ways really highlight the kind of blind spots of your own lineage or the, the ways that it shows you a different way of seeing things that I, th- I can find be very helpful. But if we do it too soon, like as Tori <laughs> pointed to, that can be, it can be confusing to us as practitioners. Yeah. But ultimately it is like, as you know, is today that, that arising of those painful mind states, the rising and passing away. I mean, that's a way of, of practicing seeing impermanence. And so the Dharma study shows you, oh, I'm watching impermanence. And you can see how, okay, where do I 
take form, where do I take ownership in that? Yeah, and it's like, you know, I, these are the teachings and I'm checking them out and they're real. They're real for me. That's right. You're seeing if they actually, yeah, the Buddha said, don't take my word for it. Sorry, we need like one of those you don't need to camera people who like <laughs> shift seamlessly from speaker to speaker. Um, yeah, we can, you know, see for yourself, see how that, how it actually plays out. Yeah. yeah. So if you something in, that's the ideal way you, you read something and it like resonates with you, maybe just, you know, close the book for a little bit and see, okay, can I actually see that for myself? Yeah. So thank you, Cheryl. All right. Anyone else online on in person? Yes. Come on up. If you don't mind. Hi. Uh, I wanted to ask about sharing. Uh, it seems that giving is a good way to diminish the ego, I guess. Mm. And um, when we share our experience or talk about ourselves, kind of, we often describe that as sharing. Yes. And so I'm wondering if that's a kind of generosity. Mm. Yeah, nice. Let me come back here. Yeah, so the question, yeah, please. Um, the reason I'm, I'm curious about this, or the reason I'm curious about this is because when we share, I feel like that's also a way to grow the ego because you're talking about yourself, right? So yeah. that's why it's a bit conflicting to me in one way you're sharing, so you're giving to others. Mm-hmm. And so that should lessen the ego, but then you're also talking about yourself, so that's kind of the opposite yeah yeah that's that's a nice uh discernment around that because that's what i was gonna to address your your question is that the exact same action can be coming from so many different ways i mean sharon salisbury when she used to come here yearly you know use this analogy of like if she had a book and she wanted to give it to someone you know she could give it in a way that was really from a generous place or it could be like everybody look at how generous i am you know, that, that's that increasing the ego, as, you, as you're saying, you know, or maybe you're giving it as a way to kind of placate them or something like that. So that's why mindfulness is such an ally for us, because we can just see what our motivation is. I think Sylvia Bornstein said something like there's an acronym, wait, why am I talking? You know, and so sometimes that's helpful to notice. Okay, especially in a group like this, when you're about to speak, you know, you can just pause and say, okay, what's the motivation behind my sharing? Is it really of a, a place of, of openness, of vulnerability, of letting go? Or is it, am I giving in a way that I, I hope people accept what I'm saying, or I hope they don't judge it, or maybe they're going to think I'm really, you know, a great meditator? All those things can be going on, or sometimes all of them at once. And so just notice that. And so the more we get comfortable with our practice, what I like to do is I'm always monitoring what my body is feeling, what my body is is experiencing. So it's kind of like a, isn't it like in the CPU that you can see how much is used on this percentage is with the body and this percentage is with the words, you know, so you're kind of noticing, oh, I'm saying something, but my, there's something tight here. That's when I really pay attention. That's something I talked about last week is, 
it's hard to be mindful in every single moment like you are in a retreat. Okay, stepping, reaching. You know, there's all this stuff going on. But you learn how to be mindful when it really matters. And when you feel that kind of dissonance in what you're saying, then that's a good time to be mindful. It's like, oh, what's really my intention behind why I'm sharing? You know, is that my sharing in a way that's really open-hearted, you know, without any expectations, no string attached, you know, and you notice, oh, that person kind of, you know, made a frowny face when I said that. Okay, notice how that has that echo. Or maybe people are like, like really listening to you and how that has that, oh, wow. And you just, the more you can just observe that without becoming identified in it, that actually starts to teach you about the nature of self. So then it all becomes, becomes a gift there. Yep, thank you for that question. How about online? All right, Iris. I stand up for our the the the, the online people here. So um so uh the group that I was in uh was was a model group, I must say. Um and I and I say that um because we all had somewhat different styles of doing it which, you know, is so beautiful. Um, and um, so for, for so, some of us, really hearing things really struck them as important to take into their practice. And for another person, um, they listen to podcasts and find that so helpful. And, um, and then other people do a combination of, of reading and, and practice um, and that integration, finding that balance um, of, of how to integrate uh, the, the study, the reading, and then the and then the, the practice. Yeah, and I think that there might have been one other point that I don't remember. So if there was one other point from our group, maybe somebody else might might offer it. But <clears throat> great, thank you, Iris. Yeah, the, the diversity of how we approach the dharmas. It's really, it's helpful to, it's so helpful to hear that because it helps inspire us. It helps us kind of maybe break out of our, our rut. And it also helps us not be too dogmatic. Like my way is the only way of doing it. And I think it's, it's also helpful, you know, for us to find what's our natural, maybe you can un, unspotlight her, um, the natural way to, to integrate and to engage in the Dharma, what's really our natural home. And once we kind of get that home, it's helpful to kind of go outside of that comfort zone also. Like, for example, if I'm a kind of person who only listens to Dharma talks or podcasts, then at some point challenge myself by reading or vice versa. Or if I really read and, and listen a lot, maybe practice not doing that for a while and really learn to, to read my own internal talk my own internal experience so what i'm saying is that we can it's helpful to find what's easy for us and it's also helpful to kind of try what's not so easy that helps us grow thank you thank you iris All right back here in person anyone like to ask share anything I feel like a teacher. No one's, some people aren't making eye contact. They're like, don't, don't look at me. <laughs> okay, Kathy, go ahead. Our group, uh, also, Iris was, uh, terrific, uh, 
we had uh, things in common. I was uh, uh, worried that I was going to be the only one who didn't study. No, not at all. People have a lot of different modalities, and and uh, it's not that I haven't listened to, you know, talks and really, uh, I'm, I, you know, I, the more I hear, the, the happier I am. It just seems to be an uh, oral tradition with me or something. I, I, I hear of things like Cheryl was saying over and over again, and they start to become internalized. And uh, one of those, Tim, that you were mentioning is that uh, I'm noticing more, I notice something, like I'll have a thought about someone, like, oh, why did, why, why did they wear that, you know, or just some, you know, anything at all. And then I'll, 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 I notice often, sometimes anyway, that, oh, look at that. That was kind of an odd thing to think. I wonder why I, why I would go there. And, uh, so your, your thing about investigation is a, uh, very fruitful for, uh, me. And sometimes it, sometimes it saved me from making some dire mistakes, but, more often than not, it's just a curious thing, and it's uh, it seems to add up to, uh, I think, uh, maybe a little more comfort in social situations that I wouldn't used to be uncomfortable in, that I used to be very uncomfortable in, just as a, a passing example. But um, I, wonder, I wonder, Tim, if you would t- say something about... Um, investigation in terms of well, well, um, how it works or how, how you how you like the example little example I gave but how would you describe it sure so the well, just a quick comment too is that the first the first writing of the you know of what the Buddha taught was 300 years after he died so you know it was it was all Oral transmission, all you know, chanting, speaking, reciting suttas, discourses, dialogue around practice. So, I think that's an important point. Now, in terms of investigation, it's really there's so many different ways we can look at it. We can have a particular, like I want to investigate the aggregates, for example, or dependent origination. I want to pick one of those and really hone in and see how that arises. But with your example of just noticing, okay, you're kind of have this mild judgment about someone wearing something. So it's almost like what activates the investigation is that sense of friction of rub. It's like if we took a, a silk sheet and was pulling it across something and there's like a little rock in it or pebble that would kind of snag the sheet. It's like we're seeing, okay, there's that little snag. Yeah, but the snag is a little, we can see the obvious part of it. But there's something that's unseen. It's covered by the sheets. We have to kind of see it from, we have to sense into it. We have to say, okay, I pull this way, pull this way. I can kind of vector it. I'm using that analogy just because it's at least the way I like to investigate. And I think it's helpful is to, to keep it really embodied as we do it. Because if we don't have it embodied, it can go to, we sometimes use the word near enemy or kind of something that's a distortion. It's more the, you know, the proliferation of thinking around it. We go into the intellect versus the direct experience. I think ideally investigation has this quality as we perceive, as we see more clearly and deeply, 
it has this effect of, of transforming us as we're doing it. And that transformation takes the direction of being this, this kind of settling, this falling away, this emptying, this letting go. It's like we let go in deeper and deeper ways. Versus when we go into the intellect, we tend to become more and more established. You know, pretty soon we can write a book about it, right? We just have all this, this ideas that we become, you know, less embodied. So like investigation in this way is really about, you know, in a way that we're trying to see through the, the, the nature of, of self and, or see, understand the nature of, of dukkha, of suffering. So you see that, okay, there's that judgment. So very practically, I would notice, okay, what's the body feeling? Go into the mind, the mind can say, okay, yeah, that's, that's out of season or that's last seasons or whatever might come up. That color just doesn't go with their eyes color or something like that. Whatever it might be that you can feel how that kind of puts us in a certain mode into our minds versus when we see, okay, where's that judgment? Where's that evaluation felt as a body experience? As we feel it that way, then suddenly we're, we're actually become more present, more steady. And as we open to that, okay, when you really judge something, when you find you're really open to that, you, you can feel the pain of that. You feel the pain of judging someone. Because really close to that is the self-judgment, right? The self, how we hold ourselves to be a certain way. Perfectionism, all those things. And, we, and so investigation is just about, okay, mindfulness, look here. Feel that, that contraction of heart. Feel that contraction of mind. And if we are able to have that really mindfulness without a lot of distortion, it starts to naturally, we start to let go in the midst of that. And we can take that in a very deep way. Does that help, Kathy? Yes. Thank you very much, Tim. You're welcome. All right. So we're almost at our time of ending. So I want to thank everyone for their questions and engagement. It really helps us to kind of flush out you know, because each one of you has your own way of, of exploring the Dharma. It really helps to hear from each one of you. I'd also like to take a moment to thank all the volunteers that helped make this evening possible. SIMS is an all-volunteer organization, and we really rely on people stepping up. So next week, we'll have another talk around this, this topic of Dharma, and I have no idea what I'm going to talk about, but I'm sure something will come up. And I look forward to continuing this journey with you, however that looks. So thank you.